Hi, welcome back. Mayor Jolovitz sitting in for Seth Leipson. As I mentioned right before the break, there's a soundbite I want you to hear. I've got to stop talking so you can listen. It's Melanie Phillips, British journalist, author, public commentator, talking about Israel and the West. Listen carefully. I call it a pathology, uh, not lightly. Uh, by, and by pathology, I mean it's a kind of madness, by which I mean this, that the people who are in the grip of this delusional uh, uh, perspective through which they view Israel and the Middle East are simply impervious to reason. They're impervious to evidence. They are impervious to facts. You bring along facts on the ground, and they say, no, it's not true. You tell them the history of the Middle East, they say, no, it's not true. Um, Now, that's not true of everybody. There is a very large number of people, in my view, in Britain, who are not impervious to reason at all. They're entirely rational. But unfortunately, the discourse they hear day after day, week after week, from the media, from the intelligentsia, from politicians across, uh, across the political spectrum, from the universities, from their teachers in the universities, all tells one story. Um, it's a story which turns truth and lies, uh, justice and injustice, victim and victimizer in the Middle East on their heads. But the problem is this, there is no alternative discourse that they hear. There is virtually no media outlet that tells the truth about the Middle East. Are you saying, Ms. Phillips, that Israel is defenseless? Israel has made itself defenseless over made the years. Made itself? Yes. There is a serious problem, as I've just described, among the Western intelligentsia, among the British media political class. But Israel has contributed to this problem in great measure because Israel has been absent from this process. Israel could have changed this if it had understood over these many years that this has been going on, that it is not just fighting on a military battleground, but it's fighting on what I've called in my writing the battleground of the mind. Israel has ignored that. Israel has taken the view, we don't care about Britain, Britain's lost anyway, Europe's lost anyway, we have America. We have other things to do. Uh, We have many more things to concern us, and we are not in the business of having to defend ourselves and our existence. Well, unfortunately, they have vacated the battleground to the other side. What about what we call in Israel, in Hebrew, Israeli Hasbara? Israeli Hasbara is a joke. Joke? An absolute joke. Israel is completely outclassed and outmaneuvered on a battleground it doesn't even understand it is on. It doesn't even have the basics of proper Hasbara. It is simply nowhere. The Arabs, the Palestinians, the Muslims have organized for years. They've put money and thought and intelligence and shrewdness behind this. They understand that the way they could win against Israel may not be a military route. They've been frustrated in that over the years, as we all know. They've understood very well there's a weakness in Britain uh, which they could exploit, that they could mount a kind of psychological warfare by which they would do two things. They would, by colonizing the battleground of the mind for their lies and propaganda, they would do two things. They would recruit millions of fanatics to their cause who would literally be prepared to die for that cause, having been brainwashed into these lies, which tell them that Israel or the Jews are about to destroy them, they're about to destroy the Islamic world, and so on. 
And at the same time, they could bamboozle the West because they understood very well that the Western intelligentsia is signed up to a way of looking at the world which is, I would call, ideological. It's to do with ideas. And long ago, it lost the idea, it lost the belief in truth, that there was such a thing as truth. If, for example, you say to people in Britain, you know, um, uh, the Jews are the only uh, people for whom the land of Israel was ever their national homeland. Um, they look at you as if you're crazy. They have no idea. They have been told that the land of Israel was the homeland of Palestinian Muslims since time immemorial. They have no idea that historically this is absolute garbage. No one's told them. No one tells them this. They have absolutely no idea of the legal commitments entered into by Britain and the international community after the First World War, which said that on account of their unique claim to this land, the Jews should be settled throughout Palestine. And you're talking about the intellectual community, about the press, about the theater world, the arts, I'm talking about the, the universities. I'm certainly talking about all those people. And, you know, you have this here in, in Israel. I'm absolutely astounded to find so many of your luminaries in the universities who themselves have no idea of Jewish history, Israel history, Middle East history, who have themselves been taught a whole load of rubbish um, and are teaching the young in Israel uh, that Israel was basically born in sin. Quite a lot of the animosity in the British high-class media is fed by organizations such as Haaretz, newspaper. Um, it's coming out to a certain extent from Israeli academics. This cuts the ground from under the feet of those who tell the truth. Yes, but there is the freedom truth. of the press in Israel, freedom of expression. Everybody can express that's, its own views, um, including Haaretz. That's absolutely fine. The problem has been that the government of Israel over many years has not understood that that is the only story being told. Freedom of the press, fine. Let Haaretz say whatever it wants to say. But somebody should be putting the truth into the public domain. And the government of Israel has not done this for many years. I mean, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, absolutely. We Let's have more of it. Let's have the freedom of speech used so that people are made aware of the lies being told. Because unless people are made aware of that, how on earth are they supposed to know? Maybe the idea of a Palestinian state, this is the solution. Maybe this will solve the problem. Well... It's being advocated even by Mr. Netanyahu, the Prime Minister. Of course it would solve the problem in the abstract, but the fact is this terrible war has been conducted over the two-state proposal. In other words, the two-state solution has been on offer, as I said earlier, from the 1930s onwards. It cannot be the solution. Every time it's been offered, there is more war. It is quite obvious. If you offer... It, it, how can it possibly be still considered to be the solution? If it only it were the solution, I would wish it to happen. Who could possibly f object to this idyllic scenario? Mm -hmm. It could work so well. State of Israel, State of Palestine... Living side, living by, side, side. by side. Economic cooperation. You can see a great future for both countries together.
fine. But this is to ignore the reality that this has been on offer since the 1930s. The other side, the Arab side, doesn't want it. It wants Israel gone. It says so. It shows it by every word and deed and has done consistently for nine decades. Miss Melanie Phillips, how many intellectual journalists in Britain share your views? There are intellectuals uh, who think like this, but they tend to be scorned and abused and vilified as the right, right wing, that all-purpose, nonsensical, infantile insult, which is designed to shut down argument. There is nothing remotely right-wing about truth against lies, justice against injustice, freedom against those who would snuff out freedom and human life. Nothing right-wing about that at all, but this is the label hung round the necks of people like myself. And believe me, it has a very chilling effect on people because you can lose your professional livelihood, your chances of promotion, you lose your friends. It's not something that people will willingly embrace. Miss Melanie Phillips, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. That segment was Melanie Phillips, a true treasure in articulating the case for Israel. Now, while I might disagree with her suggesting that in a perfect world, there would be a Palestinian state living side by side in peace with Israel, which she recognizes quite clearly is improbable, I would argue that it's impossible because to quote and to mock Al Gore about another matter, the zebra does not change its spots. It's remarkable. When we come back, after the commercial breaks, we're going to get into, in detail, the two-state solution, and I'm going to help you walk through the insanity of anyone who might suggest that it's a possible solution for the lack of peace in the Middle East. We'll be right back. Greetings. Once again, Mayor Jolovitz sitting in today for Seth Leibson, talking about Israel and all things that matter. When I speak about the two-state solution, I invariably refer to it as the two-state illusion or the two-state delusion. And I often also talk about Tyree Moorhead. So let me do that again now. A few years ago, I penned an op-ed titled, A Simple Solution. Let's pay them to stop murdering us. I reference a story that seemed so incredulous at the time that it seemed that it could not be real. And yet it was. I'll refresh your memory. It was about a recently released prison convict from Maryland and his suggestion that we pay murderers to stop murdering. The story was treated by any rational being as the comments of an imbecile, a mockery, by all people of common sense. Imagine paying someone not to murder you. So, one must wonder, what does this have to do with Israel and the Middle East? So let me connect the dots. It was a rather remarkable news story that appeared in February of 2021, and it captured our attention, if only for a few fleeting moments, perhaps because it was so absurd, so irrational, so illogical, And it seemed so laughable that it conveniently traveled from the newspaper's front page to its last in literally no time. 
but it was worth noting. Here's the short version. A Baltimore, Maryland convict, a neophyte community activist, Tyree Moorhead, spent 18 years in prison for second-degree murder. When he was released, Tyree Moorhead came up with what he says is a, and I'm quoting, a solution to the city's soaring murder rate by paying killers not to shoot people, end quote. Shocking, but not exactly novel, we find out. Deserving nothing but our ridicule, this radical strategy had been actually contemplated before in 2016, when officials in Richmond, California, tested a program where they actually paid young offenders for staying out of trouble in the endeavor to lower the city's murder rate. It certainly seemed like a joke. After all, rational minds would readily dismiss such nonsense. And yet, let's talk about Israel. And yet, on a much grander scale, this thinking is the central philosophical cornerstone that underscores the argument made by many for the establishment of a Palestinian state, a two-state solution. Israel's enemies and its adversaries have built this narrative on this fraudulent argument that it is Israel's occupation of territories that is the core problem in the Middle East. It is not. A quick reminder. We recall that the PLO was founded in 1964, three years before Israel was labeled an occupying state following its miraculous victory during the 1967 Six-Day War. Chronologically, for those of you who struggle with facts, the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, was established before Israel occupied those territories which needed to be liberated. So what indeed is it that they were trying to liberate? It's an important fact that willingly or willfully people just choose to ignore. Let me offer an accurate translation. The PLO, claiming to represent the Palestinian national movement, was not founded to establish Palestine, but quite clearly to nullify the existence of the state of Israel. So let's not pretend. Let's, however, continue to connect the dots. 1993, September 13, 1993, the Oslo Accords. Yasser Arafat, a year later, becomes the Nobel Peace Prize laureate because he promised to stop murdering Jews. It was a lie that we still live today. Arafat was simply channeling Benjamin Disraeli, who once said, diplomacy can be a weapon of war. Now, here's the truth. The Western world is evidenced by the Biden administration's demand, more so in the last 48 hours than we've ever heard before, a demand for a two-state solution. Believes that the Palestinian Arabs could actually be brought to pursue peace. This despite the fact that the Palestinian Authority and Fatah, its military arm, which we'll talk about in great detail again, not only applauded the massacre of October 7th, but actually claimed to participate in it. And the Biden administration, stupid and spineless, wants to reward them with a Palestinian state. They've adopted this obscene Palestinian offer first advanced by Yasser Arafat in 1993, 
We'll stop murdering Jews if you give us a state of our own. It's truly remarkable. You remember Tyree Moorhead, the convict, the newly self-declared community activist who suggested we pay criminals not to murder in Baltimore? Well, he could well understand the brilliance of such an offer by Yasser Arafat more than two decades before, and an offer sort of made by the Palestinian Authority today. After all, isn't giving the Palestinian Authority murderers a state of their own as part of a two-state illusion actually the same idea? You see, people are too ignorant to see the comparison or the immorality. We'll stop murdering Jews if you pay us. And yet today, a majority of the world is willing to pay the ransom at Israel's expense. The currency? The Palestinian state. This is the insanity that remains the foundation of a Palestinian state, the two-state solution. Palestinian leadership, by the way, is quite blunt. Reward us with a state even while we pay terrorists as part of this pay-for-slave program. Reward us with a state while we pay terrorists to continue to murder Jews. The lesson is clear, but most refuse to accept it. So let me go back to Tyree. Those who heard about the seemingly minor story about some moronic community activist, Tyree Moorhead, suggested we pay the murderers to stop murdering. These same people who rolled their eyes in a contemptuous, are you kidding? Are the very same people who support giving the murderous PA a state of their own if they stop murdering Jews. Not because they deserve it, but because it might appease them. This is the misbegotten endeavor to engage in nation-building by foreign policy so-called experts by Blinken, Sullivan, Austin, and others, idiots bereft of the necessary expertise in understanding the very fundamentals of the conflict and the nature of the Muslim enemy. It's a political naivete that remains unchecked. Lawrence Peter, author of the Peter Principle, once offered this memorable quote, Sometimes I wonder whether the world is run by smart people who are putting us on or by imbeciles who really mean it. End quote. Well, Tyree Moore has this in common with the Palestinian murderer and leader, Mahmoud Abbas. They're banking on the latter. A two-state solution? Yes. Believed by imbeciles who really mean it. Commercial break. We'll be back. Hi, welcome back. Mayor Jolovitz here, sitting in for Seth Leibson. We all know, you certainly all know, Megan Kelly, the former Fox Network star, still popular media personality, uh, has been quite good with her podcast, and they've become quite popular, as well as her social messaging with Twitter. Megan Kelly is not afraid to speak her mind. I want to play you, yes, another one, but it's really short. It's only a minute long. I want to play you a very short audio clip as I said a minute long, where she takes Barack Obama to task about Israel. Now, let me set the scene. Following the attack on Israel, Obama said nothing. Following the release of the details of the massacre, the savagery, the barbarism, Obama said nothing. When asked why he had no opinion, he responded with nothing. Little perspective. Barack Obama is the most followed politician 
and the second most followed person on Twitter with over 132 million followers. With the savage attack on Israel as the biggest story of the year, Barack Obama said nothing. What he did do was send a tweet out in support of Narjus Muhammadi, an Iranian human rights activist, Nobel laureate. It was lip service. On the massacre in Israel, nothing. So Megyn Kelly reacted to, uh, to Barack Obama's deafening silence and harshly criticized him for having nothing to say on the attack or the victims in Israel. Listen carefully for one minute. Obama's last tweet from Saturday, which is the day this had unleashed it when it started overnight Friday, was for decades, Narjis Mohammadi has been a vocal advocate for women and girls in Iran. This Nobel Prize is a well-deserved recognition of her courage and the hope that she represents not only for women in Iran, but women fighting repression and violence around the world. How about the women who actually were the victim of repression and violence in Israel? Not, no words for them, former President Obama, nothing to say about the children being murdered in Israel. So far, I guess he couldn't find time to actually use his little thumbs and tweet something out. That's exactly right. By the way, following her tongue lashing, which got quite a lot of play, the Obama PR team, the people got together, needed to react to the previous nothing, and they urged him to comment as the ex-president. On November 5th, which is a full four weeks after the savage attack, Obama tweeted the following. I'm going to quote. What Hamas did was horrific, and there's no justification for it. But what is also true, with emphasis, is that the occupation and what's happening to the Palestinians is unbearable. You have to admit that all of us are complicit to some degree. End quote. A repugnant comment from a loathsome man. You've all heard the stories, and by the way, the stories that you've heard have been sanitized. The barbarism which took place on October 7th, pregnant woman whose stomach cut open, the baby pulled out and killed, the rapes. In fact, Israel itself has said that they've not reported to the world the full extent of the barbarity for fear that the Israeli people might go crazy. Well, they need to go crazy. When Israel realized that it was losing the media war, it's remarkable that the Western media, we're not talking about the Arab media, that the Western media actually took a position which, which was more empathetic to the murderers, the butchers, the savages. And by the way, the 3,000 people who raided Israel on October 7th included, by Hamas's admission, 1,200 civilians, Palestinian civilians, not so innocent. They were the ones Hamas said did most of the brutal attack on Israel. That's what Hamas said then. And then they changed their mind and said that it really never happened, that the whole thing was a fraud. Then they changed their mind and said it was really Israeli jets that attacked the music festival. This is the world that we live in, that the good guy has to go and explain to people, petition the world, please understand, well, Israel should no longer play the role of the victim. Israel should do what it needs to do to give the rest of the world that middle finger. It needs to.
because of October 7th, because one child, one child too many, was murdered. Commercial break when we come back. More of the painful truth. Hi, sitting in for Seth Leapson, it's Mayor Jolovitz, talking mostly about the Middle East. In that last, that third hour that we do, I'm going to go into great detail and give you the specifics of the madness of the two-state solution. But let me just tell you this. During the commercial break, I was looking at my phone very quickly, and I noticed uh, Breitbart News. Breitbart was talking about the fact that the ideological head of uh, Hamas sitting in Qatar, Ishmael Hania, expressed, uh, put out a, a, a very loud thank you to the United Nations for voting uh, in support of a ceasefire, hoping for a permanent ceasefire. Anytime Hamas wants something, it's not going to be in Israel's best interest, is it, these ceasefires? By the way, Khalad uh, uh, Ishmael Hania is worth $4 billion. Khalid Mashal, also in Qatar, $4 billion. Musa Abu Muzuk, who used to operate out of the United States with the Muslim Brotherhood, $2 billion. That's their net worth. And the poor guy in this is the one still sitting in Gaza, Yahweh Sinwa, the one that Israel is looking for. The one who was released from Israeli prisons, by the way, in 2011 and was the architect of this particular massacre of, 14, of 1,300 people and the many, many people who've died since. He's only worth $800 million. It's remarkable. I've argued, by the way, I'm one of these critics of Israel, saying that Israel should not have done any humanitarian pause, that it's nonsense. First of all, as I mentioned in the very first segment that I did, that language is important, and calling it a humanitarian pause is a fraud. It's a lie. It's it's fake news. The number of rockets that have been fired from the humanitarian zone into Israel so far is 116. Now, that was as of four hours ago. It might have changed. It might be 117 or more. Fired from the humanitarian zone. And Israel now says that when they allowed the so-called Palestinian innocents to leave the northern part of Gaza and march to the south in this humanitarian corridor, 80% of Hamas terrorists joined them. And you understand why, of course. The Hamas terrorists don't wear a Hamas letter jacket and their green headband announcing that they're Hamas. And they joined all the poor civilians, the same civilians, and I'll give you the numbers soon, who voted for them overwhelmingly and who want them still overwhelmingly. Israel's biggest mistake, I argue, because Israel should not be giving a ceasefire and they're already negotiating possibly a next one. Israel's biggest mistake was that it began prosecuting this war with the announcement to the world that it was going to fight a moral war, that it was not going to target the so-called innocent civilians, that it was not going to target anything which was close to a mosque, a school, a hospital. And of course, Hamas took advantage of it. It was terrible. So Israel's most important bargaining chip, the way that they were able to destroy Hamas, scorched earth from the air without losing a single soldier. Israel gave that up for nothing, nothing in exchange, not even the demand of the terrorists, uh, of the hostages who were being held by the terrorists. Israel gave it up. It gave up their most important bargaining chip, 
which is to launch a strike against Hamas that the world would have understood. They would have condemned it, but they would have understood. They should have destroyed everything that they could have. Destroyed it all. Leaving not a molecule behind. And have the world petition them for them to calm down, slow down. And they could have in exchange for the hostages. But instead, there was no quid pro quo to be gotten because Israel began the war fighting a very cautious war, careful not to harm, to harm the people. It's a terrible mistake. Let me talk about ceasefires for a second, just a little perspective, and I'll do this very quickly. Israel has a history of ceasefires with Gaza, with Hamas, and it's been disastrous. It's the reason that this war happened. I want to offer this brief history just to give you a perspective. Israel withdrew unilaterally from Gaza in August of 2005. Withdrew unilaterally in August 2005. Not a single Israeli soldier was left behind. In fact, Israel actually forcibly removed 9,400 of its own citizens who were living in beautiful communities in Gush Katif, part of Gaza, in order to do what? Placate the Western world. So BBC wouldn't criticize Israel. So CNN would be a little more kind to them, which they weren't and they weren't. Israel pulls out of the Gaza. What does Hamas do? First of all, Hamas defeats the Palestinian Authority in elections, kills quite a lot of, this will become relevant when we talk about this notion of a Palestine, kills a lot of the Palestinians belonging to Fatah and the Palestinian Authority, and they start firing rockets in great numbers into Israel. December 2008, January 2009, Israel launches a response. They call it Operation Cast Lead, 22 days long. Not too many Israelis die, but it ends with a ceasefire. So what happens when there's a ceasefire? Hamas rearms. 2012, rockets launched into Israel. Tremendous numbers. Israel, once again, decides it's going to stop it. Operation Pillar of Defense. Ceasefire. Once again, Hamas reinforces and rearms. 2014, after 50 days of missiles and rockets being launched into Israel, Israel decides to go in. Operation Protective Edge. Followed by, you got it, ceasefire. Hamas reinforces and rearms. Let's move to 2021. Israel launches Operation Guardian of the Walls. Why? Because 4,369 rockets from Hamas landed into Israel. Israel goes in Operation Guardian of the Walls, quiets Hamas, a ceasefire follows, of course. Hamas reinforces and rearms. And then we have October 7th. Israel paid the price of the madness of the previous ceasefires a massacre of Jews. The present operation was called an operation at first. Today it's a war. It's called Operation Swords of Iron. It's insane. Every time Israel has a post-ceasefire operation, it's an operation. It's ongoing. It's over two months long. The number of casualties is an unbearable number for a small country like Israel to bear. This morning... It was announced 10 Israeli soldiers, some from an elite fighting force, Sheshesh 669, were killed. When? When they, empty, when they entered two buildings 
which had been vacated, they thought, by the innocent civilians. And when they came in, explosives, explosives. Ten of Israel's finest soldiers, a colonel, a lieutenant colonel, two majors, a captain among them. Some of Israel's finest. Why? Because Israel went into the buildings careful not to bring civilian casualties. It's insanity. We say no more ceasefires, no more. What we need is the total destruction of the Arab Nazis. And yes, I remind you, for those of you who've forgotten history, the Arabs during World War II were not on our side. They were with the Nazis. Their actions still are. Commercial break. We'll be back. Welcome back. Mary Jolibut sitting in for Seth Leapson. Short segment before we go to that uh, hour-long break, and when we come back, I'm going to go into the great detail. I just want to read you something quite funny, actually. Uh, some people will complain about the fact that I'm doing this. Um, it's about the left. Uh, it's about the peaceniks who all of a sudden find allies with Hamas. Uh, they, Hamas kills homosexuals. They treat women like cattle. And yet, for some reason, because it's Israel, the peace activists tell Israel to calm down. The peace activists are the loudest voices, and we've seen them in every city in the world, demonstrating against Israel. Well, there's a common-sense solution to an age-old problem that seems to be relevant, and I'm going to read it to you today. This isn't original, but it's worth presenting. How to, handled, how to handle peace activists. Okay? This is when they tell you to calm down and not to respond, not to respond to the barbarism of Hamas. So this is how you handle a peace activist. One, listen politely while this person explains his views. Strike up a conversation if necessary and look very interested in his ideas. He'll tell you how revenge is immoral and that attacking people who did this to us will only bring on more violence. He'll probably make many arguments ranging from political to religious to humanitarian. Nod your vigorous support an agreement to whatever he said. Two, in the middle of his remarks, without any warning, punch him in the nose. Three, when he gets up off the ground, he'll be very angry, and he may actually try to hit you. So be careful. Very quickly but calmly, remind him that violence only begets more violence and remind him of his stand in this matter. Tell him that he can't be nonviolent, that he must remain nonviolent if he wants to be consistent with what he says. Five, he'll usually think about it for a moment and agree that you're correct. Six, as soon as he does that, hit him again. Only this time, hit him much harder. Square in the nose. Seven, repeat steps two to six until the idiot realizes that he's making a stupid argument. That's how you deal with peace activists. You think they'll learn the lesson when it's their nose that's punched? Not sure. We have a commercial break coming up in a minute, I believe. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to commercial break, then we do the news, and we come back, and I'm going to go into great detail. For those of you who want to take notes, take notes about the two-state solution. We'll be right back. <laughs> 